This event was recorded live at the 2017 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Do it conscious. Ah, I shall start all that again. Uh. Go. Good afternoon. I did think it was a bit quiet. Uh, good afternoon. Uh, welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival. Uh, my name is Bob McDevitt. I'm the programmer for the I Write Literary Festival in Glasgow, which takes place in March. And it's my great pleasure to introduce this session with Jim Al-Khalili. Uh, can I just begin with the usual plea, which is to turn off anything that makes a noise. So if you turn off your phones, uh, we yeah. do encourage a conversation. I encourage you to tweet about the event. But if you can wait until the Q&A part of the event before tweeting, that would be great. Uh, we've also got uh, Linda Duncan, who's going to be signing the event this afternoon. Uh, Jim Alkalili OBE is a scientist, author and broadcaster. He's a professor of physics at the University of Surrey, where he also holds a chair in the public engagement in science. Uh, he, although he's probably best known to most of us, I would think, uh, as the presenter of The Life Scientific on BBC Radio 4, a weekly show where he talks to leading scientists about their life and work. Um, in his book, Aliens, Science Asks, Is There Anyone Out There? He's assembled a crack team of just such eminent scientists from different fields related to the search for extraterrestrial life. People such as Lewis Dartnell, Martin Rees, Louisa Preston, Monica Grady and Paul Davis. The tagline for the book, which did make me laugh, I have to say, is the truth is in here <laughs> in the book. And it certainly is everything from exoplanets to warp speed, artificial intelligence to non-organic life forms, SETI to the latest uh, technology in telescopes and from how we've been fed our aliens in science fiction and in movies. Uh, Jim's going to talk for about 40 minutes and give a, a, a presentation and there will be plenty of time for questions at the end so get your questions ready. Uh, for now give, please give a very warm Edinburgh welcome to Jim Alkalili. Thanks very much Bob. Well, good afternoon everyone. So this is uh, a bit of a departure for me in terms of my uh, specialism in science. I've, I've written other books on the history of science, on quantum mechanics, and, uh, but also a departure, as Bob mentioned, because this is, I was asked to sort of gather together this crack team of, of, of specialists uh, to talk about this, this, this subject, whether or not there's life out there in the universe, let alone whether anyone's come to visit us, is obviously... Uh, a subject that many people are, are very interested in. There's some statistic about some unfeasibly large fraction of the population of the United States who truly believe they've been abducted uh, by aliens. So um, I'm not going to talk about those sorts of aliens. Um, well, I might, might mention the likelihood of those sorts of aliens actually uh, um, existing out there somewhere. But after all, the universe is very big. Um, so the book, Aliens, so here... Uh, Bob mentioned a few of the names. This, the uh, resolution isn't brilliant, but that's fine. Um, some of them are, 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 are scientists, broadcasters, writers. I mean, people like so. Ian Stewart, second from the bottom on, on, on your left, is a mathematician. But he happens to also be a science fiction buff. So he wrote a chapter on how we've depicted aliens in science fiction. He, uh, he owns like 6,000 science fiction books at uh, home. So he's, he's an expert. He didn't talk about maths. Um, uh, people like Dallas Campbell, who's a, a TV presenter and uh, a background in acting. Uh, well, he made a documentary for the BBC uh, where he went to America uh, to, to try and uncover some of these stories about um, 
the, you know, so the conspiracy theory st- uh, stories about the, the aliens landing and gov- government covering it up, uh, abductions and so on. So that's a nice sort of historical uh, perspective on why uh, and how we, we, we believe aliens are, are among us. But otherwise, these are serious scientists, astrobiologists. This is a new area of science, astrobiology, looking at the likelihood of, of not chemistry but biology taking place somewhere out in the cosmos. Uh, uh, as well as astronomers and, and, and chemists and, and, and regular biologists. So I want to sort of run through it, some of the, the interesting stories that uh, sort of we uncover in the book. Uh, I want to start with uh, saying something about this man, Enrico Fermi. He was an Italian-American nuclear physicist, one of the founders of quantum mechanics. So he very uh, act born just at the beginning of the 20th century, uh, he, he carried out the first experiments on nuclear chain reactions in the 19, late 1930s. Um, he was working at Los Alamos um, in New Mexico, the, the Manhattan Project. And of course, Los Alamos Laboratory then continued after, after the, the, the bomb was built. Um, and uh, the story goes that he was in the canteen uh, there talking to some other scientists around about 1950. This was just a few years after the very first sighting of a flying saucer. And, and as you might imagine, as soon as someone sees a flying saucer, suddenly everyone's seeing flying saucers, exactly the same description as, uh, as that one. Um, but he asked the question, where is everyone? I mean, let's assume that these people are deluded if they really think that, that, that um, aliens are among us. But the universe is, is vast. It may be infinite in size. Surely it's pretty unlikely that here on this planet is the only place in the universe where life has, uh, has existed and evolved. So that became known as the Fermi paradox. Where is everybody? Not just why haven't we been visited by aliens, but why haven't we received any signals yet to, 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 to confirm that life, or intelligent life, uh, exists out there. Now, I just thought, uh, I've sort of collected, many people will say, well, no, def- aliens are definitely among us, and so here's some evidence that aliens are truly among us. It doesn't take long to look through the internet to find clear evidence. I mean, <laughs> the, the resolution on the screen isn't that good, but I, I can, trust me, the pictures aren't actually, they are really grainy. Uh, and, uh, and so, you know, clearly evidence that uh, aliens must be, must be there. Um, one of the, uh, the ways that science began to ask the question seriously about whether life exists elsewhere uh, was through something called the SETI program, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. Uh, and, and this guy, Frank Drake, who is now in his, in his early 80s, was uh, instrumental in getting that off the ground. Essentially, searching for alien life, as far as the SETI program is concerned, involves aiming radio telescopes up into the sky and just listening listening for signals, electromagnetic waves, radio waves, that have a, a, a pattern to them that would suggest that these are not created naturally, like a, a, a neutron star spinning around and giving off sort of a re- regular signal. That's boring. They, they were looking for a signal that might uh, sort of indicate that there's some intelligent alien civilization out there. After all, here on Earth, we've been leaking out electromagnetic uh, information for the last century, ever since we invented radio and television. The radio waves that, that s- spread around the world through our communication network leak out into space. And these radio waves, electromagnetic waves, travel at the speed of light, so they will have reached 
out to a distance of about 100 light years. So you can imagine us sitting inside a sphere in, in space that has a radius of 100 light years. Now that's pretty big, and there are many stars within that, within that um, sphere. So if there is any life, certainly within 100 light years from Earth, they would know about us, assuming they're technologically advanced enough to be able to, to recognize our radio waves. What they'll actually be listening to, I think, is, a, is another matter, depending on how, f how far away they are. They won't have heard any of Donald Trump's... Um, <laughs> thank goodness. <That's laughs> um, so, uh, so but what Frank Drake also did was um, create this equation that's now named after him, the Drake equation, which essentially um, calculates the, the likelihood that intelligent alien life exists out in the universe based on lots of different factors and probabilities. Um, that's that's m several decades ago now, and it's been updated uh, by this astrobiologist, Sarah Seeger. Now, she works at MIT, uh, and she's been involved in, in a large um, survey of, of uh, uh, stars within our Milky Way galaxy, and she's updated the Drake equation to something that she now calls the Seeger equation. So I put this slide together last night. I didn't have any maths here uh, in, in this talk, but I thought, you guys, you're, I'm sure you're quite capable of, of uh, following this equation, because it's, it's quite fun. <laughs> I'll, I'll break it down. So basically, this N on the left-hand side, that's the number of planets with detectable signs of life. She's not talking about aliens that can build spaceships that can come and visit us. Just simply planets where they're, they're, uh, th there's life that we can actually detect the signature of. Uh, and it involves the product of these seven numbers. So that first N star, that's the number of stars in this um, uh, uh, survey that was carried out over a number of years, uh, the test survey. 30,000 stars within, you know, sort of close to us within the Milky Way galaxy. Then the other fact, all these Fs, they're all factors. They're all an, a number between zero and one. Okay? So Fq is the fraction of those stars that are suitable for finding planets orbiting around them. Now, in recent years, we've discovered lots and lots of stars that have planets orbiting around them, so-called extrasolar planets, so planets beyond the solar system. And for short, we call them exoplanets. So sometimes you hear in the news about uh, uh, discovery of a new Earth-like exoplanet. So that's a planet orbiting another star other than our sun. And she reckons, or the, uh, uh, astronomers now reckon, they can tie this number down to roughly about 0.6. 60% of the stars in that survey should be suitable for having planets orbiting around them. And then the next factor, uh, fraction, is th the number of those stars that have planets orbiting around them that have planets in what's called the habitable zone, sometimes called the Goldilocks zone. So going, you know, Goldilocks and the three bears, uh, and Goldilocks is porridge. So it's, you know, it's, you know, daddy bear's porridge is too hot, mummy bear's porridge is too lumpy, baby bear's porridge is just right for Goldilocks to eat. Well, a Goldilocks planet is a planet that's just right for life to possibly uh, exist. So it has to be a planet that's rocky, like the Earth. We're, we're, we're sort of looking for the life forms that need gravity and a firm surface to, 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 to live on, or maybe liquid uh, um, uh, to, to, to swim in, um, rather than a gas planet. Um, but also it has to be a planet where we believe liquid water should exist. So 
It can't be too hot or too cold. It's got to be the right distance from its star, and its star has to be the right temperature for liquid water to exist. Why? Because we think water is very important for any life to emerge anywhere. Water has wonderful properties, not least of which the ability to get bring molecules together, make you know, stick them together to make complicated. Um, larger molecules, the molecules of, of, of life. Um, and the fraction of those stars with planets that have a zone is roughly about 0 0.24, 24% of, of, of those planets. Um, and then the FO, the fraction of those planets in habitable zones around their stars that we could actually see, given current technology. Most of them we can't see too far away, the star's too bright, whatever. So, so that's a tiny fraction, 0.001. And so Sarah Seeger says, right, okay, just those four, these, these N star, FQ, FHZ, F, just multiply those together, you get four, right? <laughs> so not a very big number. But the reason why I'm giving that number now is because those are numbers we, we have a good idea, a good sort of approximate value for. Because the last two factors are complete guesswork. FL is the fraction of those planets with life. Mm -hmm. uh, and FS is the fraction of those planets with life that we could detect the signature of. Okay? And I will say a little, something about that in a moment. How do you detect the signature of life? I don't mean looking through a telescope and seeing the little green men running around or seeing some evidence of their technology and you see cities you know, built on these planets. It's, it's much more basic than that. Well, she has a guess at those two factors, the last two numbers, uh, both being roughly about a half. Uh, so half of planets in the habitable zone that we could observe might have life, and half of those will give off some detectable signature. Why a half? Because if you multiply four by a half, by a half, you get one. <laughs> so it says roughly there's a probability of one that there is life out there that we could detect. I mean, so she's just showing that it's not completely impossible, it's not beyond the realms of possibility that we could detect life, but also it's not like we're going... The universe may be teeming with life, but we're not likely... You know, so we're going to have to work very hard to find evidence of, of anywhere, any planet that has life. Well, the... Um, I want to show this, this slide quickly. Carl Sagan, famous astrophysicist, uh, wrote a novel, uh, Contact, in the 1980s, uh, which tells the story of, of how you know, humanity receives a signal, a SETI program, a signal from, from some alien civilization, and it contains the, the instructions for, for building some um, device that allows us to travel to that, to that um, um, uh, star system, to visit them. Uh, and it was uh, made into a movie uh, in the 90s starring Jodie Foster and a, young, a very young Matthew McConaughey who looks very blurred there. He's much, he's much better looking than that, obviously. Um, but the reason I show this is because Jodie Foster plays... Th the character that she portrays in the film is based on a real person. It's based on this woman, Jill Tarter. Jill Tarter is now essentially running... Well, I think she's, she's retired now, but she's very involved in the SETI program today and very keen to, to try and attract more money to pour into this, the, the SETI program to search, to search for planets that may be habitable. Um, 
Of course, astronomers are, are need funding to do their research, and there's plenty of serious scientific issues that they want to be uh, addressing. So looking for alien life is still seen by many as a sort of a frivolous, to some extent, waste of time. Uh, and so the SETI program is very keen to get funding uh, to, to buy time on these uh, telescopes, these radio telescopes, uh, to devote to, to looking for life elsewhere. Because a way of looking at it, despite sort of hard-nosed scientists mostly poo-pooing the idea, for me, the notion of you know, whether we are alone in the universe is one of the most important questions uh, humankind can actually ask. You know, is there life elsewhere is a fundamental question. And were we to discover evidence of life elsewhere, that would be, for me, the greatest discovery since Copernicus and Galileo, showing that the Earth isn't at the center of the cosmos. They showed the, showed the Earth was just another planet orbiting the sun. Uh, so it knocked us off our pedestal. We were not the center of, of the cosmos. We were not that special. Finding life elsewhere would be another blow to our arrogance of believing we are so special. So we're discovering these extrasolar planets. Uh, and uh, it's amazing how we go about finding their, their uh, evidence of their existence. The, um, the main way of, of detecting an exoplanet is, after all, these are planets going around distant stars, and even with the best telescope, you're not going to see the planet directly. What you will see is only the light from its star. But if that planet is orbiting around the star and transits in front of it, between the star and us, what astronomers can detect is a very small drop in the brightness of that star. Uh, just for, just for uh, the, the time in which the planet is orbit orbiting in front of it and blocking off some of its light. Bear in mind, the star will be massive compared with the planet, but they can detect the sensitivity of their, their um, uh, measuring devices as such that they can see a drop in the brightness of the star uh, indicating the presence of a planet going around it. But we can do more than that. We can, from, this, from the, the brightness of the star we, and, and the, the properties of the star, we can tell how big it is. We can tell how much gravity it has, so how fast planets will be orbiting around it. From its color, we can work out its temperature. Um, how fast the planet's going around it can tell us how close the planet is to the star. Therefore, what will be the temperature on the surface of the planet, and so on and so forth. But otherwise, what that planet looks like is complete guesswork. So artists have tried you know, sort of a depiction of, a, of an alien. This is a... Um, I have to read it from my... No, I can't read I haven't even got my reading glasses on, so I can't even see it on my... Artist's impression of some exoplanet. It's, it's guesswork. But we do hear regularly in the news now, um, every, every month or so, there'll be another announcement of, of another star system with Earth-like planets orbiting uh, around it. Uh, one of the most uh, exciting recent discoveries is, is the, the TRAPPIST-1 system. So this is a star that is much smaller than our sun, much cooler than our sun. It's called a dwarf star. It's 40 light years away. Now, I never remember the conversion. I'm sure the scientists in the audience who know how many miles in a light year, but it's, it's, a, it's, it's the distance light travels in a year. And bear in mind, light can go all the way around the Earth seven times in a second. All right? That tells you how fast light travels. So imagine the distance light could cover in 40 years. 
takes eight minutes to get to us from the sun. 40 light years away, this uh, uh, dwarf star had, was discovered to have a number of planets orbiting around it. So here, here's uh, the, the, uh, the, the, the Trappist-1 star compared with our sun. It's tiny. It's sort of the size of a, of a large um, gas giant planet. If we look at our solar system, so, so I'm not drawn to scale, okay? I've, just <laughs> I've, ma I've made these a lot bigger. That the sun is there in the middle. This is the, the first, the innermost planets in the solar system. For the TRAPPIST-1 system, all seven, what are now known to be, we, we, we think are Earth-like planets, all exist within that distance from their star. So they're all orbiting around their star, this white dwarf star, much more closely in tighter orbits than even uh, Mercury, the closest planet to our sun. To such an extent that these planets, a year for these planets, bear in mind a year is defined as how long it takes for a planet to go all the way around its star. A year for these planets is a matter of days. So they're going around their star very, very quickly. And it's thought that a number of these planets are in the habitable zone of this star. Now, because it's a, a lot smaller than the sun, it's a lot cooler than the sun, being so close to the star means it's not as hot as it would be if we were that close to the sun, of course. So these planets could possibly have liquid water on their surfaces. What's happening in the next few years is that NASA will be launching this uh, successor to the Hubble Space Telescope. It's called the James Webb Telescope. And that telescope will be capable of looking in ever more detail and precision at exoplanets to, to, to see whether there's any... Uh, or the, the signatures and building blocks of life exist on those planets. So one of the most exciting things that that's, uh, is discussed in the book is that we're getting to the point now where not only can we detect the existence of these exoplanets and work out if they are roughly the size of the Earth, that would mean the gravity is about the same as the Earth, so you know, so, um, organisms that have the sort of complexity and size as, as life on Earth could exist without being sort of weighed down by too much gravity or floating off because there's not enough gravity, so they have to be the right size. And not only that those planets may have liquid water, but we can actually detect the chemistry that goes on in those planets, and um, more importantly, the chemistry that goes on in their atmosphere. So what the James Webb Telescope will be able to do is learn something about the chemical elements that exist in those, on those planets if they have atmospheres. Now, they may not. After all, you know, uh, if you think about uh, planets in the solar system, Earth has an atmosphere which is very conducive and nice for life. We breathe it. Venus has an atmosphere, but it's not very pleasant. Mars has a bit of an atmosphere, but it's most lost most of its atmosphere. But if an exoplanet has an atmosphere, then remember I was saying the, the way we detect this, uh, um, the planet's existence is when it sort of transits in front of its star, blocking out some of the starlight. Well, if some of that light skims through its atmosphere on its way to us, then it'll carry within it, within the light, information of what that atmosphere is made of. Now, this is what astronomers have done for hundreds of years. It's called spectroscopy. You look at the light the spectrum of light, uh, and it's more than just the colors of the rainbow, but what you can see within that spectrum, if you look closely enough, is the signature of different elements. You'll, you'll get 
what are called absorption spectra. So they're like thin black lines, that are, uh, uh, precise colors or, or, or wavelengths of light that tell you there are, there's oxygen in that atmosphere or that there's nitrogen or there's carbon dioxide. And we should, in a few years, be able to detect what gases might exist in atmospheres of these extrasolar planets. And what, and because we know there are certain gases that will be very important as well if we're looking, looking for life. Now, we think life is carbon-based. Uh, very often in science fiction, I mean, people, people say, well, how do you know it's carbon-based? Maybe you just haven't been imaginative enough. Maybe it's based on silicon. Well, the chemistry on Earth will be the same as the chemistry anywhere else in the universe. The periodic table of elements that you, know, you will remember from school with uh, all arranged, Mendeleev put this um, table together. It's on, on every school uh, laboratory wall. Those chemical elements are the same anywhere in the universe. There aren't others that, that we don't know of because they're based on, we now know how the elements are, 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 are classified. They're according to the, 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 the atomic nucleus and its charge and how many electrons are orbiting around the atom. That gives you the, the element. And of all the elements we know, Carbon is the most useful for, for building larger molecules. If you want life, you need molecules, to s atoms to stick together to make complicated structures. You don't get life without complicated structures. And carbon has a special property that it can bond together lots of different atoms to make complicated molecules. Okay? So there are certain elements that the astronomers and astrobiologists will be looking for in the atmosphere of these planets. It doesn't tell us for sure that there's life there, but it says, well, okay, all those ingredients are in place, so it may be that there's life there. But what we want is the signature, definite signature, that life does exist. One of the examples, something they'll be looking for, is whether they can detect evidence of photosynthesis. Now, we know here on Earth, plants and bacteria are capable of absorbing sunlight and turning it into chemical energy inside cells that can actually keep us alive, that, you know, create biomass. So photosynthesis is a very important process in life. And it's so important, so useful, that most chemists and biologists and astronomers working in this field would argue that life existing anywhere would want to be able to make use of the energy from its star. We need energy. And photosynthesis is such a clever trick that m maybe life elsewhere would have evolved the, uh, the, s the, 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 the tricks uh, uh, of photosynthesis synthesis to, 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 to survive. Because the, the fun thing is, if photosynthesis is going on in, uh, on an exoplanet somewhere, we should be able to detect it. If it works the way it works here on Earth, certain wavelengths of light are more useful to plants and bacteria. And, and, and uh, so, for instance, red light is much more important than green light. That's why a leaf is green. It, it reflects green light into our eyes, so we see it as green, because it, it, it can't make use of that, that particular uh, wavelength of light. So if you look at a spectrum uh, of, of, of light coming from um, a star, traveling through the atmosphere of a planet, and you see a depletion in the red light, that may be an indication that's because that red light is being used by life on that planet to, to, to carry out photosynthesis. 
it's a, the way I'm telling it, it sounds like it's a bit of a stretch of the imagination. Right? <laughs> and and, it may, and you know, it's, it, it's not guaranteed, of course, that that will be the only explanation, but it, it's one possibility. Um, that, that's really all I wanted to say about the search for life um, by, by studying the light from distant star systems. It may be, and many astronomers and space scientists would now argue that it's more likely we will find evidence for life beyond Earth not so far away, maybe somewhere else within our own solar system. There have been recent um, expeditions, unmanned spacecraft, to the gas giants, Jupiter uh, and Saturn and the outer planets. Saturn and Jupiter have many moons, and some of these moons are very interesting. Because although Saturn and Jupiter are quite far away from the sun and therefore very cold, they have magnetic fields and their moons have magnetic fields. And those magnetic fields can generate energy that can heat up the cores of those moons and provide enough heat to melt water, to melt ice, to turn it into, into liquid water. So it may be that some of these moons Although they'll be covered in uh, a layer of ice, underneath that ice, underneath the surface, the crust, there will may be liquid water. And it may well be that that's where we might find evidence of not intelligent alien civilizations, but some form of microbial life. Because for scientists, it's not necessary that we find aliens with a head and two arms and two legs who can build flying saucers. What would be enough for us is to see evidence of life emerging elsewhere. Because once life emerges, then Darwinian evolution should take over. That's, again, that's such a clever idea. No one could possibly imagine that it wouldn't happen uh, anywhere where there's life. And so one example is one of the small moons of Saturn called Enceladus. So I don't know if, you, if you're following the news, sometime in the next few weeks, the Cassini spacecraft which has been studying Saturn and its moons, it's getting ever closer in its orbit around Saturn. It's now sort of dipping in w within the innermost ring of Saturn and skimming around the surface and still sending images back to Earth. Within the next few weeks, it will finally kamikaze plunge into, into Saturn and, and that'll be the end of it. It'll come to the end of its 20-year mission. One of the things that Cassini has discovered in recent years is something unusual about the moon Enceladus. It found that it had an atmosphere, that it has the right temperature because of its magnetic field, that it could have liquid water. But more interestingly, you can see these geysers, water, like fountains, squirting out of its south pole. And it looks like, from the spectroscopy that they, they studied, that this water contains within it complicated organic molecules. Now organic molecules doesn't mean life, but it's the first step in going from chemistry to biology. So here's, here's a, 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 an object out in space, not too far from, from Earth, that has the right temperature, has liquid water, it has organic molecules. All those signatures, all those boxes you can tick. Organic molecules, of course, are based on carbon. Um, uh, and, and so it's possible 
that life could exist somewhere under the ice on Enceladus. Uh, the, the, oh, there's an artist's depiction of what it looks like. Um, the, the classic example of, of, of a moon that could harbor life is Europa, which is one of the moons of Jupiter. If you remember the, f the, the um, Stanley Kubrick film, um, uh, 2001 Space Odyssey, Arthur, Arthur C. Clarke's book, at the end of the, uh, the book and the movie, the aliens tell the, 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 the Earth scientists that you can d all these worlds are yours. You can go and discover life elsewhere. Apart from Europa, leave it alone. The, the, the hint being, that's our next experiment. You know, we're, we're, we're cultivating life under the ice of Europa. So even back then, people like Arthur C. Clarke was such a visionary. He suggested that Europa might be a candidate for life uh, elsewhere. And so uh, the idea is that you know, under the, the, the thick many miles of, of ice of the surface of Europa will be liquid water. Uh, and, on, and at the bottom of that, there'll be sort of the, 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 the ocean bed where there may be hot vents squirting out various uh, um, uh, molecules that will be conducive for life forming. After all, we believe now that that's how life started here on Earth, three point three and a half, just over three and a half billion years ago, somewhere down uh, uh, on the on the ocean floor, or um, these um, microorganisms called extremophiles that were the, the first type of life here on earth so maybe that's that would have also why would it not if the ingredients were the same on on somewhere like europa why would life not emerge there as well of course the big uncertainty is that just because you have all the ingredients together doesn't necessarily mean that life will emerge spontaneously and scientists can't agree on this there are those who will say it's inevitable you know, if you mix all the ingredients together in a test tube, even though scientists have tried this and failed, um, life should emerge. There are others who will say, life is so special, it doesn't matter how much you stir your chemical ingredients, you're not going to spontaneously create something of such subtle complexity that it can make copies of itself. After all, that's what life should be able to do, make copies of itself. Um, the, the great physicist Fred Hoyle once said that the notion that life could emerge spontaneously given all the ingredients uh, are in place is about as probable as a, as a hurricane blowing through a junkyard and reconstituting a jumbo jet by accident. If all the bits and pieces were there and then just blow them around and mix them all together, ta-da, you've got a jumbo jet. That's how complex you know, life would be, even as its simplest form. So scientists can't agree on how likely it would be that life could emerge even if everything was in place. Now, um, 20 years ago, the world got very excited by this image. So this was uh, an image viewed under a microscope of a little piece of a meteorite, a lump of rock that had landed on Earth from Mars, the many meteorites that, that land uh, on Earth from Mars, that was thought to have this fossilized, evidence of a fossilized microorganism. Evidence that life used to exist on Mars. We still believe that Mars is the most likely place where life 
outside Earth exists. And many, uh, many scientists, uh, certainly um, there's a woman, Ellen Stofan, who's recently stepped down as head of NASA. For the years that she was NASA chief scientist, she was pushing for more investment into uh, uh, mi uh, missions to Mars to study uh, Mars. And, and indeed, we are still studying uh, the surface of Mars. We don't believe there's life on Mars today, but, there, but there's good evidence that billions of years ago, Mars was much more similar to Earth, and there could have been life there on Mars. And so this was very exciting. I remember at the time, it was headline news. Uh, Bill Clinton, who was president at the time, went out on the White House lawn and made this announcement that we may have discovered life elsewhere. Whoa, you know, what's going to happen? World religions are just going to disappear, and, you know, it's incredible. Uh, and then, looking at it more carefully, they realized, actually, it's some inorganic crystal structure. It's not fossilized life at all. But, you know, never mind. Um, well done for trying. But we are still looking. It's much more likely, if we're going to find evidence of life elsewhere, that it's going to be simple, single-cell microorganisms like bacteria, rather than something that's multicellular, complex, uh, let alone sentient, you know, and, and, and intelligent and able to, to, to build rockets and come visit us. So, you know, while in the movies we always depict our aliens in all weird and wonderful colors and shapes, invariably they have a, a head, Two arms, two legs, maybe a few more arms. Um, but, you know, eyes, nose, mouth. Now, to some extent, you know, if life evolves, um, complex multicellular life does evolve, and, and Darwin evolution you know, has had enough time for it to, to become more and more complex, then it's going to make use of, you know, the laws of physics are the laws of physics. So uh, it's, it's likely that it would use some sort of um, uh, organ to uh, detect electromagnetic radiation some sort of eye. Uh, it's likely to want to be able to communicate. If it has an atmosphere, then you could communicate by sending um, pressure waves through the molecules of that gas, sound. So, will it have ears or mouth or something akin to that? We don't know. We don't know how... It may be that life exists everywhere in the universe, but it's very unlikely that multicellular complex life could ever evolve. And maybe that we are very special on Earth. And the, 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 the rarity of intelligent life you know, that exists here and maybe hardly anywhere else in the universe, the sticking point may be that step from single cellular organisms to complex life. What those single cellular organisms look like, we don't know. I've said that life needs various things. It needs you know, energy, it needs uh, um, maybe liquid water, carbon-based, organic molecules. But does it need DNA? Um, DNA is very, very good as a, as a means of storing information and using that information, you know, that, that instruction manual, our genes, that, that allows it to make copies of itself. That's the basis of life. There may be another way of arranging complex molecules that can store information and, and use that information to make copies of it. It may not be double helix strands of, the, of this uh, DNA molecule. Uh, but it would have to be something complex enough to, to, to store information. Um, I just wanted to end saying that th th this is a, 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 a serious area of research, which maybe 10, 15 years ago would have been deemed very much on the fringes of science. You know, serious scientists had much better things to do with their time and, and their hard-earned research grants than to, to look for aliens out there. 
But astronomy uh, has developed so rapidly in the last decade that I would argue it's actually quite likely that we will see evidence of some form of life elsewhere. That it would be hard to imagine that this is the only place in the universe where life exists. Stephen Hawking recently made a statement. Stephen Hawking makes these th- soundbite statements that he knows are going to provoke a reaction. And you can just imagine thinking, <laughs> they fell for that one as well. well he said, you know, w- the Earth is, 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 is finished, you know, Donald Trump's in charge. You know, we need to go and find somewhere else to live. Um, and so we should go and find uh, a, a, another planet. But I think it's worth remembering that for the moment, however bad things get on this planet, or you know, however bad even climate change becomes, we are still going to be hard pushed to find anywhere else for us to go and live. Now, maybe there are other planets and moons where other forms of life exist. That doesn't necessarily mean there are these idyllic sort of havens for, for humans to go and escape to once things get a bit too hot under the collar here on Earth. But watch this space. Thank you very much. Thank you. Well, I, thi- I think I've pretty much covered everything I wanted to cover, but I'm sure you, you have some questions and we have another 50 minutes, so I'll uh, do what I can. Yes. Oh, you have to wait for the microphone because it's all being recorded. Um, does the Seeger equation take into account whether life has existed or is it all about whether life does exist elsewhere and, and how would that change it? Uh, yeah, well, that's okay. So that's, that's, a, that's a good point. All it's doing is talking about whether life exists now in terms of what we can see. Now, of course, the now is also a loaded word because you see something 100 light years away, what you're seeing is what was there 100 years ago. Uh, but, it's, but you're right, it's, it's, it's a snapshot. Uh, and th- th- what many people will say is, okay, uh, if, if the evidence you know, is that there's chances of life elsewhere now, well, you know, we may not be living in the right era. It may have been, life may have been you know, much more prevalent three billion years ago or five billion years ago or 10 billion years ago. You know, the universe has been around for nearly 14 billion years. Uh, and so what we're looking at is, a, is a, this snapshot in time now that w- what we can see. So of course that opens it all up. So, so certainly for looking, for looking for life on Mars is exciting because that's going back all the way through, through the history of, of, of the solar system uh, and, and therefore much more likely. If life doesn't exist there now and, and Mars was, a, was a, an exoplanet, it will be a dead planet to us. But the fact that we can go there and dig under the Earth, uh, then that means we're, we're opening up the past as well. Yeah. Hi. Uh, do you think it's a good idea for us on Earth to advertise ourselves to... <coughs> possible uh, civilizations beyond who may well be much Le- more less than friendly, <laughs> and possibly quite dangerous. Uh, yes, that, that's an interesting point. In fact, um, one of the contributors to the book, astrobiologist Lewis Dartnell, covers exactly this point. Um, but the way he puts it is that you know this notion that uh, an alien race that would come to Earth, you know, what would be their motives for coming here? If they were advanced enough to be able to build inter- you know, uh, um, uh, spacecraft that could do interstellar travel, then 
there'd have to be a very good reason for them to cover the vast distances across space to Earth. Now, could it be to, 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 to take our resources? Well, you know, water? Well, there are other places presumably nearer to where th their system is which would have all the same elements that we have. There's nothing that we'd have special here that wouldn't exist elsewhere. Would they come to, to, uh, to eat us? Well, uh, you know, we... <laughs> There are certain things here on Earth that we can't eat that wouldn't agree with us. Imagine trying to eat something that isn't even DNA-based. You know, they wouldn't be able to digest us because our molecular composition would be so different. For and, and, and even more so, would they be able to mate with us? Well, again, you can't have mating between different species here on Earth. So why would you have mating between humans and, uh, and aliens? So that's, that's also uh, impossible, which is why the, the film... Uh, what's that? There's the... Um, the film that was the precursor to Aliens, someone shout, Prometheus. Um, Adam Rutherford, another one of the contributors of the book, regards Prometheus as the worst sci-fi movie ever made. <laughs> Completely riddled with nonsense and holes, and one of them is that you know aliens sort of had mated with humans and so on. So, so yeah, so so Lewis Darnold goes through all these different reasons as to why, and his conclusion is that it's not likely that they would come to visit us unless it was. To, to extend a hand of friendship or to, to give us some advice, like how to build the pyramids, for example. Um, uh, yeah, so, uh, but they'd have to have a good reason, given that if we're constrained by, by the laws of physics and, and the, 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 the speed of light, then, uh, you know, it, it'd be hard to, to know how they'd cover those vast distances to, to, to reach us anyway. So the notion that they're, they're among us now is, is uh, one would think is quite unlikely. So, gentlemen behind you, yes, and let's make sure there's people here. Just a quick one. Why are they always green? <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's green. Or grey. I'm not quite sure. I think it's one of those things where, you know, the, the, the mythology evolves when, when, you know, it's the same as, you know, why do they, why do they come in flying saucers? You know, the first person to, 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 to claim as a pilot in America in 1947 claimed he saw this f silvery flash in the sky that looked like a, a giant flying saucer shape suddenly everyone's seeing flying saucers. Uh, and so presumably whoever was the first person to claim they'd seen an alien. Uh, I th but I think you know, the shape from aliens, it just goes back in mythology to sort of um, ancient human history of, of how we would depict spirits and demons and so on uh, that, uh, that sort of evolved. And once you, you've got some sort of uh, uh, idealized way of depicting an alien, suddenly that's what aliens should all look like. <laughs> So down at the front and then at the back. And then anyone, no one, no one here yet. No one, no one questions. Good. Come to you. Uh, you yeah. You mentioned that uh, there were uh, astronomers have been busy with other great discoveries during the past ten years, having nothing to do with uh, whether there's extraterrestrial life. Uh, I assume that's as a result of the Hubble uh, uh, telescope. And I wonder if you could comment on what some of those important discoveries are. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I th certainly in the last 20 years, astronomy books have had to be rewritten because, you know, although uh, the basics, you know, that, you know, that the, the solar system, the sun is just one of hundreds of billions of stars within the Milky Way galaxy. The Milky Way galaxy is one of many billions of galaxies in the visible universe. The Big Bang theory of you know how the universe formed and the fact that it's expanding—that's all been known, certainly you know for, for, for longer than my lifetime. But what's happened in the last twenty years is that we've discovered new things about the universe that were unexpected. So, 
1998, it was discovered that the universe is expanding ever more quickly, rather than slowing down. Everyone thought the universe expanded, the Big Bang gets bigger and bigger and bigger, but gravity puts the brakes on. You know, all the stuff in the universe is slowing the expansion down. At some point, it'll either stop it or maybe bring it back and collapse it on itself in a big crunch. In 98, it was discovered by looking at very distant galaxies that, in fact, it's getting bigger ever more quickly. So it's never going to recollapse in on itself. What's driving that? What's winning against gravity? So that led to the notion of dark energy. Now, dark energy is this almost sort of mythical concept. We don't know what it is. We just know there must be something that's pushing the universe apart. Similarly, it w it w we're now beginning to understand how galaxies hold themselves together. It was discovered that stars going around the outer rim, outer regions of a galaxy, are orbiting much too quickly. So gravity of the, the whole galaxy, of all the other stars in the galaxy, wouldn't be strong enough to stop them from flying off. So there must be something else sticking them together. And that's led to a different notion than th that of dark matter, which is quite different from dark energy. Just the fact they both got the word dark in them tends to confuse many people. And, and we still don't know what dark matter is made of. We, we, we sort of think it's out there. There's lots of evidence out there, but we don't know what it's made of. So it's discoveries like that. Then, of course, the discovery of exoplanets. Um, the Hubble telescope is just one of many, many Earth-bound telescopes have, have got more and more complex and more and more clever. And we now don't just have one telescope looking at a region of the sky. We have multiple telescopes all looking at it from slightly different angles. And you can combine that, you know, that image together to get much better resolution. Add to that, you've got your space missions going to visit the, the, uh, the other planets within our, our, our solar system. And you see, astronomy is a very vibrant, it's always been a f you know, one of the, the sexiest areas of science. You know, kids, if, they, if they're interested in science, it's dinosaurs and space. And maybe superpowers now, if you can call that science. Um, but in recent years, I think astronomy has advanced so rapidly, there's, there's just so much to do. So the notion of looking for signatures of life elsewhere has sort of had to take a back seat. But I think now people are realizing since it's within our grasp to potentially look for evidence of life elsewhere, we're taking it more seriously. So there was up at the top there and then up at the top on that side. How are we doing for time? Oh, plenty of time. Thank you. Given how we treat aliens on Earth, do you think it <coughs> would be safe for them to advertise themselves to us. <laughs> yeah, try it, to see if they can get an Esther to get into the United States. <laughs> yes, I, I, the, the, yes, that's very true. I think we, I, I, I suspect, you know, the one thing that would happen if we did discover evidence of life elsewhere, I would like to think that it would be unifying for humans on Earth. <laughs> because whatever our difference is, you know, we are pretty similar to each other compared to alien life. So, so uh, for me, I think it will be a positive thing I I I if we did. It might, it might help us not only look after our own planet to realize how precious our home is, but also maybe, uh, you know, to you know, realize we are, we are as, as a race, as a human race, not that, not that different from each other. But that's, that's just me being all soppy and, and, and idealistic. Um, so there's a, a lady back there and then gentleman two rows in front. However uncomfortable it might be going to be, do you actually foresee a time when we might be colonizing planets like Mars, our nearest neighbor? Um, yes, the, uh, absolutely. I think, I, I think it's, it's almost inevitable with the advance of uh, the progress of science and technology that we will be colonizing uh, Mars, potentially even um, uh, Venus, uh, certainly the Moon, maybe some of the, the moons of the outer planets, but it's not going to happen just yet. I mean, th 
NASA are really, uh, and indeed you know, the, uh, the Russians, are t- take the idea of sending uh, human missions to Mars very seriously. Um, it, was, it was one of those things, it's a bit like nuclear fusion, it was always you know, 30 years away. Uh, and th- I think there was lots of optimism after the Apollo missions and the space race. Uh, now I think there's a th- the optimism is increasing again. I would predict that by, you know, the first humans on Mars will be around about the 2030s. Um, uh, but there would have to be a, a economic reason for sending people there more than just it's there. We have to, you know, when th- with the space race in the 60s, there was a reason. There was the, the superpowers were vying for being top dog, showing how, how advanced their technology is. That's less of, of an issue now. And I think there'd have to be very strong economic reasons in terms of, uh, mining for resources there that we don't have on Earth, rather than because Earth is so crowded that we need to find somewhere to stretch out again. I think that that time we're, we're talking not the 21st century probably, or maybe towards the end of this century. Hi, um, as a non-scientist, I, I find that fascinating. Uh, this might be a stupid question, but amidst all the uncertainty and probabilities that you talked us through, you seemed incredibly certain that the laws of science are immutable, the laws of physics will be the laws of physics, etc. How can you be so certain so many million miles away? Well, okay, <laughs> scientists should never be certain about anything, as, as, as we, get, we get told off by people who don't think climate change is happening. How can you know for sure? Um, yeah, you're right. You know, we, 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 we can, wha- the one thing that we should not be as scientists uh, is certain of anything, or to say that I believe this, therefore it's, you know, because what scientists try and do is overthrow the, the current understanding. You know, that's, I was one of many scientists who didn't want the Higgs boson to be discovered. It'd been great if it hadn't been discovered, because it means back to the drawing board, Nobel Prizes on offer again, and, and you start from scratch. You know, if, if everything's done and dusted, you know, it's, oh yeah, and we found the Higgs. Well done, Peter. You know, this, uh, or, uh, so, so we want for there to, to be new laws of physics. It would be great if some concept like dark energy overthrows the, the, the standard model of particle physics. It would be great to discover new particles that suggest that what we thought was, you know, we were being dumb. Um, but in terms of what we know, it's certainly true that what we think happens here on Earth, you know, the, 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 the force of gravity, whether you use Newton's uh, equation or Einstein's theory of relativity, that should be true here as anywhere else in the universe, you know, the what it, the universe is made—it's not going to be made of completely different stuff somewhere else as it is here, because those fundamental forces that that we can describe, uh, we we see no evidence for them to be different elsewhere. The furthest we can look out into into space, the most distant galaxies, the lights from them tells us that the chemistry that goes on there. The, 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 the way the stars evolve, the way the galaxies hold together is exactly this, the way it happens closer to home. So we think it should be the same everywhere, but that doesn't mean we know everything about the universe. We are always going to be surprised. And as a scientist, I want to be continually surprised. Otherwise, we'd all be out of a job. <laughs> so one more. A gentleman here had his hand up. Apologies if there was... If, if it's very quick, <laughs> if it's very quick, we can, we can come, to you as, come to you as well, yes. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about active attempts to communicate with other beings? Um, I, uh, Voyager, for example, carried images of yes. human beings and so on. 
and there have been attempts to broadcast information about Earth into space. Um, is that still going on? Um, n- not really. I mean, there have been sort of ideas, you know, where mavericks have wanted to you know, send send a signal out there and just and 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 wait for a reply, but because space is so vast, most scientists don't see that as a very interesting notion because you know by the time our message gets somewhere and then you've got to th- they've got to hear it and decipher it and send a message back that doubles the time uh, and so unless it's somewhere as a star very close close to to the, the solar system uh, we're not going to know for many years so it's m- much more you know uh, I think the, the returns are higher if if we just listen directly to them sending us their message directly because it's, it's had all that time to travel through space and we're just capturing it as it arrives. Yes? Hello. Uh, should we limit ourselves to the speed of light for communication? We now know that entanglement is possible. Why don't we use that to look for species elsewhere across the whole of the universe, for instance? Uh, because quantum entanglement still needs is still constrained by the speed of light even though two separate particles are which are quantum entangled uh, you, you know you, what you do to one instantly affects the other you can't use that notion to send information the state of a particle entangled with a very distant one only is half the story you still have to send some other information uh, uh, below the speed of light to, to, get the full, to get the full information across. So quantum entanglement isn't something that we could ever use to violate the speed of light, even though at the quantum level it, it appears as though it's, that's what it's doing. Probably could go on uh, all afternoon, uh, but we have to stop. Uh, Jim now is going to be signing copies of the book, uh, just in our little signing tent just over the way here, on sort of halfway between here and back to Charlotte Square. It's a terrific read. I, I found the different voices... Uh, entertaining and engaging and different sort of um, in lots of different ways so I really really would recommend it uh, thank you very much for coming along today thank you for your questions thanks most of all of course to Jim Al-Khalili thank you thank you, thank you very much thank you you come out quick thank you very much more podcasts and videos of Edinburgh International Book Festival events are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk on iTunes and YouTube. Just search for Ed Book Fest. The next book festival is on from the 11th to the 27th of August 2018.